Father, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your amazing gift of salvation. We thank you that you came and you lived a life here as Jesus Christ and that you died on the cross and through his death and resurrection, we have the opportunity for salvation and we thank you. We thank you that you are here with us in this moment. You're speaking already to us through the worship. You're moving and guiding us through your spirit. Lord, I just thank you for the fact that no matter what situations we find ourselves in, whether there's hurting or there's needing of healing or encouragement and peace and direction, you are there and we thank you for that. We thank that you thank you that you never leave us or forsake us, that you walk with us through all things. You are amazing. You deserve all the glory, for you alone are worthy. Lord, I pray that as we enter into this time that you will that you will bless it as we dedicate it to you, as we take this time to slow our lives down to focus on You. Speak to us. Lord, I pray for our community. Guide us through Your Spirit on how we can constantly be working to be Your hands and feet, Your words of encouragement, Your, your voice of redemption to a community that needs healing, to a community that needs guidance, to a community that needs salvation. We love You. Lord, above all things, we want Your will in our lives. We want Your will in our church above anything else. We pray all of these things in Your Holy Son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. So good to see you. Vicky, I think that our breath smells. Everybody's sitting far back. And our breath smells? I assume. I have a mint. Oh, you have a mint. Okay. A mint. Good, good. <laughs> it's good to see you this morning. Don't be afraid of the front rows. They won't bite you next time. You don't have to move today, but next, next week. Uh, if you'll open up your worship folder, there's a few things I'd like to bring your attention to. We have um, quite a bit going on, and we want you to be aware of it. Make sure that every week you look through your worship folder, because I don't highlight everything we're doing, um, and so we don't want you to miss anything. So the first thing we want you to be aware of is starting today, um, going through the 30th of May, we are doing a pastoral search congregational survey. You can get a paper form out on the desk in the foyer, or... You could go online, whichever you are more savvy enough to do. If you're all about hard paper, that's great. You can grab one of those. You can uh, think on it, pray on it, and bring it back to us uh, and turn it into the church office. Or if you're computer savvy enough, there's a website in there. You just go on there. I think it's five or six questions long. It's a very short essay. It doesn't take a lot of time. Um, but we would we want to know what your feelings are. So please be part of this. Uh, this is put on by the district. Um, as we move along our pastoral search um, process. So that's our first announcement. Secondly, we are celebrating today our 96th anniversary of the church. Woo! 
We are not old. We are young at heart, right? 96 years old. Last year was our 95th anniversary. We wanted to have a big celebration. We spent weeks in staff meeting planning with hopes and anticipation that we could be together, and then it came and we couldn't. So today we are celebrating our 95th and our 96th anniversary. Um, so make sure that after service there will be cupcakes in the foyer to grab one to honor the fact that we are 96 years old, moving along in life there. Uh, today, following second service, uh, we are going to be having a baptism class. For anybody who is curious or interested in learning more about baptism, um, or you're just interested in being baptized, uh, you don't have to decide today. So if you come, it's not like you've sealed in blood that you're going to be baptized. It's just if you have questions, come. Uh, we're going to be meeting in either room 101 or 102 right after the service, uh, depending on how many people we end up with. Um, so plan to do that. Uh, I'll be leading that class. Next Saturday on the 22nd, we are going to be doing an all-church cleanup day. We want to make our grounds look nice and clean. We've, um, we're, we're in need of some weeding and weed eating and all kinds of different things. So we're going to be doing that on the 22nd from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. If you plan to stay for the whole the whole time, I would encourage you to bring a sack lunch of some kind so that you can eat when we have our lunch break. Um, but you can come for any amount of that time. So if you're only able to give an hour or so, that's okay. Um, the, all the help we can get will be um, very, very helpful. Um, I would encourage you to bring tools with you. If you have a weed, weed eater or um, shovels or whatever you use to do yard work, plan to bring that so that we can, um, we can do this project. Uh, the 30th of May, this is Memorial Day weekend. We are going to be having only one service. It'll be at 10.30, so it's not going to be a big change for you guys. It's our 9 o'clock service. They have to change. Um, and it'll be on the east patio outside um, during that day. Um, so please come. We're going to have a great service. And we're going to be honoring uh, our the sixth graders who have come through the caravan program. This is their last year. And they have are receiving the final um, award, which is the Phineas Upper Z Award. So that'll be part of the service, and we're going to honor them on that day. So try to make it if you can. It'll be a, a great day. That is all of our announcements, and we all said amen. My favorite time. Anybody, If anybody wants to do announcements, if you're really good at announcing things, talk to me. I'm happy to share the load. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, if you open your Bibles, we are going to be in the book of Acts. Uh, we have moved out of the book of First John, and we are going to be moving into Acts for the next couple weeks as we prepare for Pentecost Sunday. Uh, so we're going to be in the first chapter there. So if you want to turn in your Bibles um, that direction, we'll read that in just a moment. But before that, will you pray with me one more time? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit uh, that speaks to us and makes the word alive in our lives. Father, open our hearts and our minds to what you have to say to us today. Uh, it is only through you that we can receive anything. Lord, I pray that your spirit will fill my words with your power, for it is, for I am nothing without you, and I want this to be what you want said, Father. So please fill this with what your words will be today, we pray. Lord, we dedicate this time to you as we learn and focus on what you have for us. In your holy name, amen. All right. 
So if you'll follow along with me, we'll be in that first chapter there, and we're going to read through the first 11 verses. In my former, my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all about that Jesus be, all about that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them, gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. No one, um, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of the Holy, uh, uh, the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then he, then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky when he, uh, as he was going, when suddenly two men appeared in white, um, two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand before, uh, stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back the same way you have seen him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. All right. This chapter starts off giving us very, very blatant clues as to who wrote this book. Uh, the book of Acts was written by Luke. We know this because at the beginning of the book of Luke, Luke addresses his, uh, what's the word for the person who sent him? Can't think of it right now. Uh, the, his benefactor sent him uh, to go and find out about Jesus, Theophilus. Uh, so Luke was not an apostle. He was not a disciple of Jesus. All right. The other gospel writers, Matthew was a disciple. Mark was not a disciple, but he was the pin scribe for Peter. Most commentators believe that the gospel of Mark was the eyewitness account of Peter. Okay. And then we know, as we talked last, uh, about a month ago, that John, who wrote the book of John, was also a, a disciple. Luke was not a disciple. Luke was someone who was sent by Theophilus to go and to find out about Jesus, to find out what this was, what, what was this movement? And Luke went in and he basically interviewed anybody and everybody who had anything to do with the life of Jesus. All right. A lot of commentators say that Luke is the most well-rounded version of Jesus's life because it's not just from one person's point of view. He's getting the point of view of lots and lots of people. All right. The book of Acts is Luke continuing his writing. He's, the book of Luke is all about the life of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, the time afterwards as he goes into heaven. Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles, as the book is actually called, is the story of basically from when Jesus goes into heaven to the growth and development of what would later become the church. Okay. 
He was the church. He was the first church historian. He wrote the history of the early church. Um, and it, it's, it's a good, it's a good history. I encourage you to read it. It covers all of the beginning of the church from, uh, when they first start out in Jerusalem, the coming of the Holy Spirit, as the, the church begins and sort of explodes in Jerusalem, their persecution, how they get spread out into Judea under persecution, how Saul becomes Paul and he joins the church and through Paul, he goes out and starts all these missionary works with, um, and begins churches throughout all of the Roman Empire. Okay. Um, and so Luke, like, documents all of that stuff. So we have a history of how the church sort of unfolded in the beginning. All right. So Luke is writing this book to Theophilus. He's telling him that this is a continuation. So this comes from the life of Jesus to become what we will know as the church. And he says that after Jesus um, suffered on the cross, um, he comes back to the disciples, the resurrection. We know the story of how he um, appears to the disciples. All right. Jesus tells us, or Jesus, Luke tells us that during that time, Jesus gives the disciples many different convincing proofs of that he was actually alive. One of the uh, the, criti- the critics of the of the resurrection believed that Jesus was just a spirit; he wasn't really fully resurrected. Um, and uh, it's some commentators believe that's the reason almost every gospel. Writing talks about how after Jesus came back to the disciples, he ate with them. It's, it's important to note that Jesus needed food. Spirits don't need food. Ghosts don't need sustenance. But people do. And Jesus was resurrected. He was in his body. He was really, truly alive. Luke also tells us that that um, Jesus stayed with his disciples for 40 days. 40 days, that's a long time. And there isn't a lot of, there isn't a lot of detail about what Jesus does during those time, during that 40 days. We have some early accounts when Jesus first shows up to the disciples, um, where, where we see little stories of how they see Jesus for the first time. And we see the end when Jesus gets ready to go up into heaven and then the ascension. We don't see the big bulk of that time. So we don't really know what he's doing during that time or what he's teaching the disciples during that time. But we do know that he was teaching them. Luke says that he spoke about the kingdom of God and the importance of the kingdom of God. Forty days, that's a significant period of time. The number 40 is significant throughout the scriptures. Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days with the Lord, preparing Moses for what he was going to do when he goes back to Israel to tell them about the law, to institute the, the, the formal worshiping of Yahweh. 40 days of preparation with the Lord, where the Lord taught him and gave him detailed descriptions of what he should be doing. I don't think it's coincidental that Jesus then spends 40 days preparing his disciples for what will become their new reality. They might not have understood that that's what was happening in the moments, but that's what he was doing. He was prepping them. He was teaching them about the kingdom of God, which would become what they would then go out and be teaching a world as Jesus' witnesses. It was a period of preparation. 
Luke again says, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, Jesus was eating, not a ghost, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Jesus spoke about the Holy Spirit regularly. He talked about how the Holy Spirit was an active participant in what he did in his ministry and what it was going to be for the disciples later. He says, John was baptizing with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. We know that moment to be Pentecost. We know it'll take 10 days from this period to when they will receive the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. They, we know what it looks like. We're going to talk about it next week. They don't know. They just know that the Spirit is being promised and that the Spirit will be given to them. It was a very, very common belief in the, in the Jewish tradition that when the Spirit of the Lord came, um, came again, that was when the end times was. That was when the, the world was coming to an end. That was when um, the, the, the true Messiah was going to do what he was going to do, which is what spurs their question. They hear that they're going to receive the gift of the Spirit, and then they come to Jesus and they say, okay, so does that mean that at this time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel to its former glory. They're still thinking physically. They're still thinking that this liberation from Romans Rome's oppression was going to happen and that Jesus was going to institute this new kingdom state of Israel. And they didn't think just because they didn't want to be oppressed. They thought that by the power of the Spirit, they were going to be restored as the kingdom and they would be the true kingdom of Israel, which would become a beacon of light to a world of pagans around them so that all the pagans would then follow and worship the kingdom or the God of Israel. They, they had evolved enough to understand that it didn't just mean they were going to be liberated from Rome, but they still held on to the fact that it was this true physical manifestation. And Jesus answers them. Unfortunately, it's not the answer they were hoping putting for. He said, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons, some translations say, that the Father has set by his own authority. Jesus is trying to get their focus to shift. He's trying to get them to, to stop focusing on the when and the how it's going to happen, but to understand the person who's going to make it happen, and that's God. That they, He wants them to understand that you don't need to know exactly the day and the time. You don't need to know at what when, in what era it's going to happen. That's what seasons normally means when we look at it in the scriptures. It means a period of time or, a, or a, uh, an era of time. You don't need to know. You just need to know that it's going to be God who brings it about when he brings it about. But he doesn't leave them with just this disappointment. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And immediately after that moment, he goes into, he's taken up before their eyes and a cloud obscures him. Now, many people naturally assume that because he goes up into the sky, that means heaven's up in the sky. We don't really know where heaven is. We just know it's wherever God is. But 
it's not so much where he went, it's the fact that there was a cloud involved that mattered. Because throughout the Old Testament, the cloud was sort of the imagery of God's activity or God's involvement. When God took the Israelites out of Egypt, during the day, he took the form of a cloud to lead them. During the night, he took the form of a pillar of fire. Okay, So all that the, the disciples really needed to know was that wherever Jesus went, the Lord is the one who took them there. And it says that they're sitting there and they're almost dumbstruck by what has happened. They've had this bomb of a command laid upon them, and we're going to unfold what that means here in just a couple minutes. And then Jesus goes into the sky and disappears behind a cloud. And they're looking intently, meaning that they saw everything. There was not like, it was not like they were like in some kind of a dream state. They witnessed him leave. And they're looking and they're probably searching for him. And all of a sudden there's two men dressed in white standing there. And he's like, why are you looking at the sky? Don't focus on the fact that he's left. Because he's going to come back in, the, in, a, in a very similar way. There are a couple different ideas of who these men were. Um, and that it's not so important that we know who they are. It's the message they gave. That Jesus will return. This begins what we refer to as the second advent. This begins the waiting and the searching and the, and the anticipation for the fact that Jesus will return to us again. Okay? They were told not to leave. They were told to stay in Jerusalem and to wait for the gift that they were going to be given. This gift was the Holy Spirit. This gift was the power that would come from the Holy Spirit. And so they do. They wait. And we're going to unfold more of that story next week. But, but what was it they were waiting for? Why were they waiting? Because Jesus says He wants them to go out and be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What is a witness? What is a witness? When you go into court and, and a witness is called, what is it that they're doing? They come up and they tell their story, right? They tell however they experienced or whatever it was they experienced about what the trial's on whether they saw so-and-so do something or they, they witnessed this van driving this way. Like, it, it, they're telling their story. The gospel writers are witnesses of the life of Jesus. That's what the story is. We have three eyewitness accounts of Jesus and what it meant to follow him. And then we have one, one story about the eyewitness account of a lot of people who were involved in it. They're eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. Did you know that in the Jewish culture, it only took two people to confirm the same story for it to be official? One person, you, you could question whether or not it was real. Two people made it really real. Like It, it was a confirmed thing. 
we have four accounts, three eyewitnesses from the disciples themselves, and then Luke's account, which is the eyewitness account of many eyewitnesses. Convincing proofs of Jesus and who he was. He tells them that they have to go and wait for the Holy Spirit to come so that they could receive the power of the Holy Spirit in order for them to be his witnesses. Did they have to have the power of the Holy Spirit to be their witnesses, his witness? Could they not just be his witness without it? Could they not go out and tell the story of Jesus? Sure, they could. I'm sure they already had been. I'm sure they've told about Jesus to people. So what? why did they need the wait? The Holy Spirit is God. Jesus is God. With Jesus, it was God in physical presence with them. At the ascension, Jesus leaves them. And he says, now don't go anywhere. Wait for the Holy Spirit. It's this continuity, that's not continuity, that's the word. The continuity of Jesus flowing into them through the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus is the same as the Holy Spirit. It's the Trinity, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are all God. So when Jesus left, it was no longer that they had to, had Him advising them, a single person advising them. When the Holy Spirit comes, like we'll talk about next week, when the Holy Spirit comes, the very presence of God would reside in them, and each and every one of them would have the Holy Spirit guiding, directing, giving words, giving counsel on how to move forward. Jesus knew that the church was going to face things that the, the disciples could not handle on their own. That they would need the power of God on their side. And so he says, wait. Go and wait. That's a common denominator with God often. Go and wait. I'm not a fan of waiting, but that's what he does often. He'll say, go here, now wait, and I'll wait for me. We need to listen sometimes. So they go and they wait. And he says, because when this comes, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will no longer just be witnesses, but you will be my true witnesses to Jerusalem, to all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Because you see, the Holy Spirit, when he's involved, he can give them direction on what to say. He could tell them where they need to go. He could counsel them on who to trust and who to be involved with. They might be creative guys, but this is the God of the universe who would be directing them. That's different, right? They would be given the power to heal, to, uh, to bring transformation to people's lives. And so they do. They wait. Now, the list of places Jesus is wanting to send them, it's an interesting list when you look at it. It's, it's the way that the book of Acts unfolds, actually. If you were to read the full book of Acts, uh, the church starts in Jerusalem. It's there for a while. Then it gets, it comes under persecution because the group starts growing quickly and the religious leaders see it as this weird little cult, uh, from a, of a man that they thought they had killed. 
forming within their capital city. So they get these these really awesome guys who become in better in lack of a better word, inquisitors, to go out to find the cult members to stomp them out. And one of the best ones of all of them was a guy named Saul. He was a really good he was really good at what he did. We we stole him. He later became Paul. So he became and he became the best apostle. He was just above the bar. So good. He came to the right side of the team. Okay, so the the church becomes persecuted in Ju- in Jerusalem, and so they scatter. They separate outside of Jerusalem into the surrounding area of Judea. This is a very comfortable place for them. This is where most of them come from. And wherever they go, they're telling about Jesus. They're being true witnesses. And little groups of people become believers, and the church is spreading now. It's interesting that throughout history, anytime the church comes under persecution, that is when the church grows. Because it's under persecution that the, the word of God becomes alive for some reason. Anyway, it's a rabbit trail. We're not going to go down tonight, today. But so it spreads out into Judea. The inquisitors follow them out into Judea. And it is on one of these trips that Saul, going to Damascus, meets the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's when he becomes Paul. Okay? From there, they go out into Samaria. And then Paul and several others become these missionaries that go out into the whole Roman world and start churches wherever they go. The reason this list is interesting is because there's some places on here that I don't think that the men who heard this list for the first time really wanted to go to. Jerusalem, that is a comfort zone. That's that's where they're at. They're happy there. Judea, like I said, another comfort zone. They're okay being in Judea. Samaria, not as comfortable. Because the Samaritans were sort of a half-breed Jew. They were people who were Jewish descent who intermarried with Assyrians when they were taken over. And they had created this weird off kind of cross-religion with Judaism and a bunch of other religions and they, they were seen as Gentile and were not liked by Jews. But they're not like, they're not like real Gentiles who are pagans. Because you saw, you understand that the people of Israel believed God had chosen them. And that's where God's salvation would go. To the chosen. So, It's good to go and be witnesses to Jerusalem. It's good to go to be witnesses to Judea because they are the chosen people. Ah, going out into Samaria, they're sort of still kind of chosen. And I mean, Jesus preached to the Samaritans and saved Samaritans. So, okay, we'll, the saving work of God can maybe go out into Samaria. But that ends of the earth one, hmm, that's different because those guys are Gentiles. They are pagans. They do not believe our God. They are not even sort of a half-breed. God's saving grace does not normally go out to that, that group of people. So this is a big ask for Jesus. He's asking them to do something that they're not comfortable doing. But what he's telling them is he's saying, listen guys, the saving grace, the saving work of, G- of God, the salvation, it's for everyone. It's not just for a select few. Take that, Calvin. It's for everyone. Anyone could have it. 
that was a reference to John Calvin, who believes in predestination, and only if you get it. Anyway, sorry. Theological joke. <laughs> Apologize. <laughs> anyway. Um, where does the ends of the earth happen? Can you drop a pin somewhere on Google Maps to where a geological, uh, a geographical location is? That is the ends of the earth. And if we get to that place and we go there and we say, all right, this is what you need to know about Jesus, does that mean we've met the mission? We've accomplished it? The apostles, they didn't even know about most of the world. Everything that was known was considered the Roman world because it was Rome who controlled all of the known world. So for them, it really just meant Rome. It's the reason Paul was so determined to get to Rome because he felt like that was the ends of the earth. If he could get in front of the emperor and just tell him about Jesus, then he would have accomplished the mission. But the world was bigger than that. But, but we live in a, in a time where there isn't really a place in the world that we haven't explored yet. We've been almost everywhere. I mean, I've seen video of tribes, native tribes that supposedly have had no human communication or, con or connection, however we have video of it, of these tribes where, I mean, everywhere has been gone to. So have we met the mission of ends of the earth? I don't think so. Because I don't think it's a geographical thing. I think it's like a heart thing. The ends of the earth is more about who it is they're talking to than where it is they're talking to them. For them, the idea of offering the salvation of God to a Roman would have been inconceivable. Romans don't deserve God's grace. They oppress us. They hold us down. They make us be in poverty. They take advantage of us. They abuse us. Why would God give them grace? But that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, guys, you're going to go everywhere. You're going to, to, to tell everybody wherever you go. So, so who, who are the Romans in our lives? Who are the people that we question whether or not God might be willing to save them? That's a challenging question for us. And it's not one we like to think about. We don't like to be introspective on the fact that there might be groups we don't think are worthy of grace. But Jesus says there are. Every single person is. And it is our job as Christians to be the witness to those people. The message that the two men give to the disciples is sort of a, a call to action. Because he says, why are you looking up into the sky for Jesus? Because he will come back on the same, in the same way that he left. He's coming back. 
they were excited. They're excited about the fact that he's going to return. And he, and they believed he was coming back quickly. It was created this sense of urgency to be about the work they were given. It, it created this urgency and this, yeah, I guess urgency is the best word, is urgency to go out and be the messengers. They became super actively telling everybody because they didn't know when it was going to end. You know, there's a parable Jesus told about a ruling, a ruler who gave his um, workers some a task or a mission. In the story, it's money. He gives them this task, this mission, and he says, I'm leaving and I will come back. And then while he's gone, the, the workers are supposed to um, make something of the task or the mission. In the, in the parable, they had to multiply the money they were given to be smart about how it's about being a good steward, being, being smart about multiplying. And when, the, man, when the, the ruler comes back, they assess how they did. And two of, the, two of the three did great. They doubled what they were given. The one was afraid that, they, that, he, that he would mess up, so he hid his so that he at least had what he was given to give back to the, to the ruler. Jesus is the ruler of the universe, and he has left. He's given his disciples a mission. He says, I want you to go and I want you to be my witnesses to everybody. And he's going to come back. And there will be an evaluation to find out how they did. Who did they talk to? How many did they witness to? How many did they tell about the salvation they could have through Jesus? We are, we have that same mission. Scholars believe that the fact that the book of Acts was written at all indicated that even at that point, the urgency was beginning to and diminish. Even in the early church, they didn't necessarily feel like at any moment Jesus was coming back yet. So church historians began to write about the history of the church so that we would have the history of the church to read. It's been 2,000 years since this period of time. And every generation since this period has thought that the Lord was returning during their lifetime. Every single one of them. He hasn't come back yet. He might come back in our lifetime, and that would be amazing. But the urgency has greatly diminished in most churches, in most Christians. We get used to our normal lifestyle, right? I'm happy with my lifestyle. I'm comfortable in my normal routine. The urgency isn't there as much as it should be. Ah, I can do that tomorrow. I'll tackle that task in a month from now. I'll, I'll talk to that person next time I see them. What if there isn't a next time? What if there isn't tomorrow? We don't know the number of days we have left. And you can look at it on two sides of the coin. You don't know how long you're going to live. You could, you could die today. You don't know that. 
And on the other side of the coin, we, we don't know when the Lord is returning. He could return today. He could return tomorrow. We don't know. I've been teaching a Wednesday night Bible study where we've been talking through different parts of the Nazarene church and who we are as Nazarenes. And, and we've been looking through the articles of faith. And uh, last Wednesday, we talked about sort of the end of time. And we talked about the second coming and, and these kind of things. And, and I, I, I talked about how everybody has always assumed they were the last generation to be. And I said that I don't know if I will be the last generation. I should always plan like I'm not going to be. I need to have my plans to know how I can live my, a full life for God, but then in the moment live every day as if it's my last day. And there are times when I do that really, really good, and there are times, more often than other times, that I'm not doing that very good. I do a lot of planning, and I need to remember to live in the moment that this is the last day. Someone asked Martin Luther, the theologian, if you knew today was the last day that the Lord was coming back, how would you spend your day? And he said, I would do what I always do. I would pray and I would study and I would go out and I would tend my peas in my garden. And it was this idea that his life would not change if he knew his, la his last day was today. And that's an important lesson because so often if you were to ask somebody, if today was the last day you were going to be alive, if you knew that the Lord was coming back today, almost everybody would say, well, I would do this and this and this, and I would make sure everybody I know loves that I love them and, and I might change this habit or I might do this thing. Like, but every day could be the last day. So why shouldn't every day look like that? And we've been given this mission to be witnesses. To be true witnesses. To be witnesses with the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Because when we accept Jesus into our lives, the Holy Spirit, the, the very, I mean, God Himself comes and resides in our hearts. And he then begins to advise us, direct us, and counsel us in how to live out our lives so that every day can be the last day and it would be okay. We should be looking at every relationship with purpose to make sure that we are truly witnessing to the loving grace of Jesus, to the salvation that could be given to anyone. We should be Sensitive to how the Spirit leads us. That nudging in our hearts at times when we maybe get that feeling of, I should ask if that person's okay. Maybe you don't know them, but it, you get that nudge. Have you ever had that? I've had that. And I listen to it, unfortunately, about only half the time. But when we, when we get that nudging, we need to follow it. Because the disciples were eyewitnesses. They saw Jesus. They saw His ascension. They could tell exactly what happened. They were true eyewitnesses to it. They could tell about their experiences with Jesus. We are not eyewitnesses to that. We did not see Jesus living on this planet. We did not experience his resurrection firsthand. We did not watch him go into heaven. However, you have lived a life with Jesus in it. He's been involved in what you've experienced. He's healed. He's ministered, He's redeemed, He's transformed you and, and those around you. And you are an eyewitness to that. And truly, you're the only eyewitness to how He has transformed you. 
And when the Holy Spirit is involved, He will guide and direct you to people who need to hear your eyewitness of Jesus. People who only potentially you could unfold the mystery to them about it. Because potentially you have a shared experience that opens their eyes up to it in a different way than if someone else were to share with them. Be sensitive to how the Spirit leads and guides us in our relationships and our conversations and where we go and how we spend our times. Because we are the witnesses of God. You're going to be put into places or into conversations with potentially people you don't feel like deserve it. And that's where the power of the Holy Spirit comes in. Because here's the secret, you don't deserve it either. And so we need to put that behind us and say, okay, Lord, speak through me. And for some of us, that is hard because we're nervous to speak to people. We're nervous to speak to strangers. We don't know what to say. I'll tell you, every time I get up here, every time I come behind this podium, I am nervous about what to say. I don't know if I can actively or articulate exactly what it is I should be saying. It is the reason I pray what I pray every Sunday, that that the Lord will speak through me, that it will be His words and not my words, that it will be the power of the Holy Spirit that is speaking and not me. Because if it was me, it would not be what it should be. Be praying that. Say, Lord, give me your words. Speak through me. And the big booming voice of God isn't going to speak through your mouth, but he will tell you what to say. He will direct you to the words you should say. We are his witnesses. We have a mission. It's an amazing opportunity to be involved in the growth of the kingdom of God. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you. I thank you for how you were moving in our world. Lord, help us to be involved in where you're going. Help us to watch and to hear and to see and to follow you. Guide and direct us with your Holy Spirit so that we can be the witnesses that the people around us need to hear. Give us courage and strength to speak into people's lives, not in some kind of we-know-what's-right way, but just in the love of Jesus. Counsel us how to spend our time to direct our lives. And every day we lay our will at your feet and we say, Lord, what do you have for me today? And help us to be sensitive to your direction. Help our church to be sensitive to our community and to its needs and how we can best be witnesses to it. We love you. Oh, we want your will. Thank you for your grace. In your holy name we pray. Amen.